and welcome to episode 176 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, I need to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Lewis Burrell, Lois, Sandra Turan, Shannon Roseanne, Deborah Clorley, Jen M, Diana Meetuk, Matthew Doy, Louise Setzler, Katham Killam, Gabriella Buratova, Elizabeth Pryor, T.A., Kissa Hargett, Vanessa from the Hauntedly podcast, Veronica Killiker, Rosie Wright, Luke Gilman, Melissa Schumacher, and Julia Dixon. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week, our film review is The Menu. The Menu was released in 2022. It has 7.6 out of 10 on IMDb and 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. A young couple travels to a remote island to eat at an exclusive restaurant where the chef has prepared a lavish menu with some shocking surprises. As always, I'm going to do some likes and dislikes. And I have to say, I was really pleasantly surprised by this film. I went to see Triangle of Sadness a couple of weeks ago, which is a film all about these people who are on like a luxury yacht and and the yacht crashes and everything goes wrong. Uh, And it was kind of like a, a social satire on class and money and wealth. And I really didn't like it. So that's Triangle of Sadness, obviously not this film. I really didn't like it. And I And I went into the menu, I think, with the same idea. I kind of knew it was going to be like a commentary on money and wealth and food. And I was thinking, oh, it's going to be another triangle of sadness. And I don't know if I could be bothered watching it. And I don't know how I'm going to feel about it. But I love Ralph Fiennes. So that's kind of why, primarily why I wanted to see it. And I also love Anna Taylor-Joy, who is the kind of female protagonist in the story. So... I guess it's important to say as well that I really like food. I'm definitely not a foodie. I, like, I don't know a lot about food, but I like food. I consume a lot of food. And I was uh, I was pretty excited about the concept for this film. And one of the things that really annoys me in life is food snobbery. It really, really annoys me. I can't bear when people judge people for the things that they like or dislike to eat. You know what I mean? Where it's like, oh, I can't believe you only eat this thing let people like what they like I feel the same way about music about films when people are like oh I can't believe you like this band you know or people are like you can't like that band because you're too young or whatever anyway really annoys me and this film is really a satire on food snobbery and food culture and Ralph Fiennes plays this uh, head chef but he's sort of like a cult leader and he was so unsettling but also really ridiculous at the same time. Like his uh, his portrayal of this character was sort of cynical and satirical and got a bit ridiculous and really hammy at points. But I really enjoyed watching him. Like I loved watching him. And I felt like he probably had loads of fun while he was filming this film. And I guess fundamentally, it is a commentary on like, the classism and snobbery of food so they go to this restaurant the menu is really exclusive and it's like really ridiculous and each course comes with a story about why the food is presented the way it is and what people are supposed to get from eating the food and Anna Taylor Joy's character is like no I just want to enjoy food for food's sake and this is ridiculous and I'm not really that into it which is a great kind of foil to the other people around her so you've got like all these other characters in 
the restaurant who are all kind of engaging in certain elements of food snobbery like you've got the food critics you've got Anna Taylor-Joy's date who is like a a real foodie and it's really interesting to watch those characters being picked apart in a satirical way and it's also like a real commentary on how kind of vapid wealth can be so each table costs like two and a half grand each person I mean each plate costs two and a half grand which is like loads of money and it's just a kind of like you look at it and you think, oh God, like food snobbery and food criticism is actually pretty ridiculous at times. And the horror in the story comes from this head chef and how he plans out this menu. And the film was definitely like violent, but it wasn't outrageously so. I was worried that it was going to be kind of filled with like really gratuitous eating or vomiting or really gory violence and it isn't I mean I've said countless times in this podcast I'm not a fan of gore I don't like excessive violence and I didn't feel like this film was too much and the moment when the film turns or the dinner turns I mean you get unsettled right from the very beginning but when everything kind of goes wrong as it were you start to learn things about each of the characters that ended up in the restaurant and how they ended up there and why they were there and what was happening to them and I really enjoyed that element of storytelling especially because I'm a nosy bitch like I want to know about people you know I want to know what what misdemeanors people have done in their lives I'm nosy I, I need to know this information I like gossip visually it was beautiful It was really, really beautiful to look at. The food was beautiful. It was all set in this one like beautiful restaurant room that was overlooking the sea on this island. And I felt like they really captured that feeling of like exclusivity. And I genuinely, I genuinely laughed out loud like multiple times when I was watching this film. I went to see it in the cinema on my own and I really was entertained by it I was entertained by how much they took the piss out of like food critics about food snobbery about like Instagram influencers you know famous people I I really enjoyed it and I laughed out loud but I'm not sure that it was a true horror comedy which kind of brings me to the dislikes I really thought the ending was quite weak like I didn't like the ending at all and I felt like there needed to be more exposition previously in order to make the ending work And I don't know if the lack of exposition was about trying to get this air of like ambiguity and mystery or if the lack of exposition was kind of just a flaw in the script writing. But I kind of, I just didn't like the ending and I really wanted to love Anna Taylor-Joy. I love her as an actor and I think she's a really strong actor. But actually I thought as like the female protagonist, I just didn't like her. I I just didn't think she was very good and I wasn't really that bothered about her character or whether or not her character survived. I just wanted more of a deep dive into everyone that was there. I just didn't get enough. You know, I didn't feel satisfied. I didn't feel satiated by the amount of information that I got from them. It is fundamentally a pretty ridiculous film. And I think it will be divisive. Like, I don't know if it's a film for horror lovers, to be honest. I don't know if it really is a horror film. Like, there are elements of violence and Ralph Fiennes' character is is particularly disturbing at points but does that really make it a horror I don't I don't think so and I kind of I have to say I get annoyed by the dichotomy of Hollywood and big budget Hollywood films making these satirical commentaries on wealth kind of feels a bit hypocritical to me and I always have that in my brain when I'm watching these kinds of films that are making these commentaries like Triangle of Sadness like 
this film I'm a bit I'm, a, I'm, I'm I sort of think to myself really are you the person to be making this comment or are you the people to be making this comment because you're all wealthier than pretty much 99% of the people on the planet but fundamentally I really enjoyed it I laughed out loud I loved the concept I loved the the visuals I loved Ralph Fiennes's character Nicholas Holt was also in it who if you're an OG Skins person you'll know who he is and I'm not a massive fan of him as an actor I don't think he's a very good actor but I enjoyed his character I really enjoyed his character and I really wanted to hit him like I wanted to hit him multiple times watching this film I'm actually going to give this film four out of five. I had a good, I had a good time when I was watching it. Which brings us to our story this week. Now, before I start today's story, I need to let you know that I'm actually recording somewhere else. So I've just moved house. I'm not entirely sure what my recording setup is going to be in my new house. And I'm currently in a room that is full to the brim of boxes. There's stuff everywhere. I don't know what the natural house noises are yet. So if you hear like any noises in the background and you're thinking, what is that? It's probably just natural house noises that I haven't quite figured out yet. Just wanted to say that before we started into the story. And also, if this episode comes out on Sunday, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a Christmas miracle, an early Christmas miracle. Because I don't know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get this out. So with all that being said, as always, the sources that I've used are going to be in the description of this episode. And let's crack on with the story. Louisiana is a small town in Pike County, Missouri. And as someone who has a limited knowledge of US geography and landscape, when I think of Missouri, I think of cornfields and woodland, farmlands and rivers. I don't think I'm too far wrong. White picket fences and wooden frames are commonplace along the river and Louisiana is home to one of the best cryptid stories out there. The story of the Momo monster. It was the summer of 1971 and Joan Mills and Mary Ryan had stopped en route to St. Louis, Missouri. They were having a picnic on the grass at the edge of a small wood. The day was beautiful, and they took their time chatting, laughing and preparing their food. They made sandwiches, and commented on how peaceful it was. There were soft rolling hills covered in forest, and cornfields swayed and rustled in the slight breeze. It was idyllic. The two lounged on the grass and ate, but both became aware of something strange. Firstly, it felt almost too quiet, like the thick, heavy silence before a thunderstorm. But there wasn't a cloud in the sky. And secondly, they were hit with a smell. It was rancid and so pungent that they looked at each other in disgust. What is that? Mary wrinkled up her nose and covered it with a handkerchief. It must be a skunk or maybe a family of them or something, Joan suggested. They both knew it wasn't. The smell was so strong and rank that it caught in their throats. Joan put her sandwich down and craned her neck to look into the woods behind Mary's back. All Mary saw was Joan's face draining of colour. Her eyes widened and her mouth opened up in horror. Mary felt a cold fear rise up through her body. Joan? What is it? What is behind me? Joan watched as something walked out of the thicket only mere metres away. It was huge and walked on two legs. Joan was breathing heavily and started to scramble backwards to get away from it. But still it came. 
It emitted a strange gurgling sound that erupted from its throat and Mary shuffled to Joan's side, seeing the creature for the first time. The two women looked up in horror. It was tall and looked like some sort of primate, but its face... Its face was more human than primate. Its arms were long and its body was covered in hair, but its hands and palms were hairless. Mary reached for Joan's hand and squeezed it, and with an unsaid decision, the two women staggered to their feet and sprinted back to the car. They bundled themselves in, locking the doors as Joan scrambled for her keys. Shit! She had left her purse with their picnic and there was no way to get it without being confronted by whatever this thing was. And still it was coming, following the women to their car. Both women sat frozen, Breathing heavily, tears were streaming down Mary's face as the creature circled the car, stopping to look at the women through the windows. It stopped at the bonnet of the car and slammed its hands down on it, staring intently at the two women. In a mix of panic and desperation, Joan pressed the car horn. The long, loud honk startled the creature and it began to retreat but not before stopping to investigate and consume the remnants of the food left behind by the terrified women. Eventually, it disappeared back into the thicket, and Joan waited as long as she could bear before she sprinted back to the picnic, retrieved her keys, and they got out of there as quickly as they could. When they got to the nearest town, they contacted the Missouri State Highway Patrol and filed an official report. As with many of these reports that occur all over the world, how do you make someone believe that this really did happen to you? How can two women on the road convince officials that a huge ape-like creature had emerged from the woods and stolen their picnic? The truth is that they couldn't. But one year later, in the summer of 1972, their story would suddenly become validated and the town of Louisiana, Missouri would be gripped with monster fever. It was July the 11th, 1972, and 8-year-old Terry Harrison and his 5-year-old brother Wally were playing in the fields behind their house when they smelled a terrible smell. The smell was accompanied by a strange gurgling sound, and it was Terry who saw the creature first. It emerged from the woods of Marzolf Hill, a tall creature covered in hair. Its head was pumpkin-sized, and it seemed to have no neck. The hair was long and black and matted, and as Terry looked at the creature up and down, he realised, in fear, that its fur was covered in something red, something thick and dark. It dripped down from its hands where it held a lifeless dog. Terry screamed, and the children ran as fast as they could back to their house. They piled in the door, screaming for their 15-year-old sister. Doris! Doris, there's a monster outside! Ordinarily, Doris would have laughed at her brothers for being so ridiculous or assumed that it was some sort of game, but they were very clearly terrified, and Doris assumed they had come face to face with some sort of wild animal and gotten a fright. Trying to calm the boys down, she looked out the window and stopped. Standing on the hill, looking towards the house, was a creature. She had never seen anything like it. It stood taller than any man she knew and was covered in hair. She bolted the door and the three children cowered against the door of the house, hoping and praying that whatever this thing was, it wouldn't try and get into the house. If it tried to get in, 
they wouldn't have a hope. Doris crawled to the phone and rang her mother in work. Her voice was barely above a whisper as she was terrified that she would somehow draw the creature in. She begged and pleaded with her mother to please, please come home. There was something outside the house. Mrs Harrison rang her husband Edgar and implored him to get home quick. There was some sort of prowler outside the house and the children were terrified. When Edgar returned home, he was greeted by three frantic children, their faces tear-streaked and blotchy and their story garbled. Eventually, he managed to get a linear story out of the children and he set off into the brush to find what they had described. He found nothing except that parts of the thicket had been flattened as though stood on by something or someone big. He couldn't really explain what had happened, but he knew the children had seen something. They were not particularly mischievous children and were not prone to lying, and they were so frightened. He assumed that they had seen a prowler, albeit a human one, and something about this person's appearance had made them think they had seen some sort of monster. But that night, as Edgar lay in bed, he heard a strange sound. He was used to the noises of the countryside, but this sound was clear. Someone was running through the brush outside his house. Edgar scrambled out of bed and knocked on the doors of his bleary-eyed neighbours. Four men searched Marsoff Hill that night and found nothing. And the next night, Edgar again lay in bed and listened to something circling his house. Something big. That night, eight men searched Marsov Hill and found nothing. That week just so happened to be the Harrison family's night for hosting the local prayer meeting and there were 30 people in the house. At approximately 9pm, Edgar was standing outside the house and was saying his goodbyes to the other attendees, half of whom had already left. They chatted and laughed and caught up when suddenly somebody gasped and said, Look! Twelve people watched as several balls of light moved across the sky just above the tree line. Most of these people had lived in Missouri all their lives and they had never seen anything like it before. The twelve remaining guests hastily left and Edgar and the rest of the family were left to their own devices. The lights kept coming. And as Edgar sat on the porch idly strumming his guitar, he heard the unmistakable sound of a growl and the growl became a rumbling roar. He stopped strumming and listened to the sounds of the night. There it was, an animalistic sound like nothing he had ever heard before. It took Edgar a few minutes to realise that his family had joined him on the porch and were standing nervously behind him. Edgar... We need to leave. I want us to take the kids away from the house. It's not safe here. Edgar was reluctant. He wanted to see. He wanted to know. But the safety of his children was more important and he couldn't take any chances. The family climbed into the car and pulled out of their driveway to be met with a sight that they did not expect. A group of people... Forty strong was making their way towards the Harrison house. Some had guns and some had bats. They had heard the roar and seen the lights and they were going to find whatever this thing was. The vigilante group made its way towards the hill. At some point the police were called and joined the search. They searched Marsolf Hill. 
and found a dilapidated old shed which reeked with a pungent smell like nothing they had smelled before but they found no creature. After the group had explored enough for one night the Harrison family packed up their belongings and went into town to sleep in their restaurant. The town was gripped. Something was on the loose and reports came thick and fast. People reported hearing growling in the night. Dogs had been going missing. Two boys said they came face to face with the creature in the woods. A huge hairy creature had walked out in front of someone on the road at 5am the morning of the incident. Someone else had seen the creature with a sheep gripped in its mouth. By this time, the police chief, Chief Ward, was worried. No matter how much he tried to tell people that it was probably a bear or a prankster, the calls kept coming in. And these calls came from reliable, trustworthy people. People Chief Ward had known all of his adult life. And he was finding it hard to remain cool and sceptical. He was mostly worried about people running around in the woods with guns, hunting for a bipedal creature. It was a disaster waiting to happen. So in order to alleviate the concerns of the people, he mounted an official search of the woods. And the woods were combed through, but to no avail. There was no evidence of any monster. But the people kept reporting growls and screams throughout the night. Ellis Miner was a 63-year-old fisherman who had lived in Louisiana town all his life. He grew up alone and was weather-beaten and hardy. He rarely smiled. And when he did, he was missing more than a few teeth. But he was hard-working and reasonable and well-respected in the town. Ellis Miner knew every single creature that lived in those woodlands. And he too had seen this creature. Ellis Miner's tale above anybody else's acted as a sort of validation for all of the other stories. He had been out one moonlit night and his bird dog had stopped dead, heckles raised and began to growl. Ellis peered down the road and in the moonlight he watched a six foot creature covered in dark hair lumbering across the road. It was no bear, and it was nothing that Ellis had seen before, and the smell was like nothing he had smelled before. And still, the reports came thick and fast. People came out of the woodwork to say they had seen the creature before, but had been too afraid of seeming crazy to report it. People continued to hear growls, roars, and high-pitched screams. Huge, three-toed footprints were discovered and casts were made. People searching for the monster would report the terrible, pungent smell that came and went. A group of college students reported hearing a strange, echoing, disembodied man's voice shouting at them in the woods, but could find no source of the voice whatsoever. Eventually, the newspapers got hold of the story and people flocked from miles around to try and find the creature which they christened Momo. It became both a gold mine for the town and incredibly dangerous, with large groups of men roaming the woodlands and shooting at anything that made even a slight resemblance to a monster. People were coming from miles around and Chief Ward declared Marsov Hill to be completely out of bounds and put up a blockade to stop outsiders from entering the town. But still the reports came, reports from towns up and down the river, people seeing the creature emerging from water, buried animals being dug up, strange footprints and mysterious lights being reported in the sky continually. Lights in the sky, 
and sightings of this creature were happening up and down the Mississippi River. Balls of light would emerge from forests and fields and shoot into the sky, lights that seemed to communicate with each other mid-flight, and reports of crafts landing in fields and wooded areas. The reports of creatures like the Momo monster seemed to have been around for years and years. It wasn't limited to the summer of 1972. People had seen the creature at a distance. Some had chased it through the woods, hunting it down, thinking it was another animal. One person had seen the creature on a roadside and it had thrown a half-eaten pear at his truck. One had found the creature in their chicken coop, trying to catch and presumably eat the chickens. There was a rhyme and a rhythm to the stories. It was big, definitely six to seven feet tall. It was generally covered in thick, dark hair, but its hands and feet were often said to be bare and it had a human face and it was fast and strong. It growled and gurgled and shrieked. The story of Momo is reminiscent of many other Bigfoot-esque sightings and the pungent smell of the creature is completely consistent throughout the stories. But there was an element to this story which goes back to 10 years previously, before any of the hype or media coverage of Momo. Miss Judy Gustin was in the town of Joplin, Missouri in 1964 with her husband and with a group of friends. As they were walking through the town, Judy noticed that there was some sort of attraction in the streets and the group went to see what it was. There was a large van in the street and it had signs which read that if you paid one dollar, you could spend ten minutes viewing the mysterious creature inside. Intrigued, Judy and her friends paid the dollar and they entered the trailer in order to see the alleged missing link. Inside the trailer was a large chest freezer and inside the freezer, encased in a block of ice, was a body. It was the body of some sort of bipedal ape-like human. It had long hair, long arms, but its face was more human than ape-like. In its chest was a bullet hole and the ice around the hole was slightly clouded with red as though the blood had seeped out as the water froze around the creature. The thing that Judy was most intrigued by was the smell. It was pungent, and it smelled of decay. She returned four times to see that creature and was convinced that it was real. It had been a real, living being. And when she made inquiries about where it had come from, she was told that it was shot by a farmer just outside the small town of Louisiana, Missouri. The story of Momo sparked a frenzy in a small town. And the story has continued, its legacy lives on, people still talk about it to this day, me included. But eventually, outsiders lost interest in the story. And the locals went back to normal living. And life in Louisiana, Missouri continued as it did before that summer of 1972. But that's not to say there hasn't been sightings ever since. There have been sightings of Bigfoot-type monsters all over America and indeed all over the world. But yet, despite the frequency of these sightings, despite the casts that were made of footprints, despite hair samples being taken, no definitive proof was ever offered as to what the Missouri Momo monster was, whether it was a hoax or whether there really is something living in the woodlands. So, people of the podcast world... 
If you want a full rundown of like the scientific and indeed pseudoscientific theories behind Bigfoot, please go back and check out episode 170, which is the Battle of Ape Canyon, in which I outline what these pseudoscientific theories actually are and whether or not I believe them. So I'm not going to do that in this episode because we can assume that this creature is some sort of Bigfoot type creature. So potentially the theories are going to be pretty similar. So this also might be the last time that I talk about Bigfoot because the stories end up being really similar and it's hard to kind of make them like really interesting and engaging when they have all these patterns that happen over and over again. It's very similar to haunted house stories. I try and space out the haunted house stories because they're often very similar. They follow a pattern, which is kind of interesting in terms of like the psychology behind them. Like, are these things real? Like, why do they follow such a pattern? Is it because these animals have a pattern of behavior or is it because humans have a pattern of behavior? It's hard to know which one it is. So we're going to go right back to the first sighting, which was the two women having a picnic. Was that first sighting a person in a costume? It's the hairless hands that got me. Why would the hands be so hairless? And there was also like in lots of the Momo encounters, they talked about the torso being hairless and the feet being hairless. Kind of sounds like somebody wearing a costume. I mean, there's like definitely biologists listening to this who are like, no, that's not what it is. You know, these (laughs) creatures have hairless hands or some primates have hairless hands or whatever. But it sounded like somebody in a costume. I don't know why that's the first thing that came to my head. And I just wonder how much of this was a hoax, considering it was so limited to that summer of 1972. And obviously, like I said, there were reports beforehand, but they were sporadic and they were sort of spread along the river. And this concentrated mass sighting event seems to have been kind of limited to that summer of 1972. So was it just mass hysteria? I find it absolutely wild that this happened in this person's house. So Edgar Harrison, he heard these noises, whatever. Next thing you know, this fucking mob formed. A mob of people who are like, that's it. I've been waiting for this moment. I'm hunting that creature and I'm going to shoot it. And I'm going to, what are you going to do? Like parade it through the town? Like that is, it's wild to me that that was (laughs) the town's first port of call was let's hunt this thing down. And we're all going to run around in the woods shooting everything that moves. There was a report in the in the book that I got all this information from about a farmer whose bull was shot. And he was obviously absolutely furious and he rang the police. And the police officer, the chief ward, was like, they technically haven't broken any laws. But like, this is actually really dangerous. Because if you've got people out in the woods who are like, we're going to shoot anything that moves on two legs you're going to end up shooting another person. It is absolutely baffling to me that somebody else didn't get shot in this instance, for sure. But is there a little part of me that wants to be part of a baying mob who is hunting down a Bigfoot-type creature? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. It gives me very Beauty and the Beast vibes without the Stockholm Syndrome. And obviously, a big part of this story is the smell. So the smell of this creature, it was apparently like really pungent, really strong, like rank, rancid. And it would make sense, right? If you've got a creature that's got long hair, that's bopping about in water, obviously you're going to have bodily odours, fluids, water itself, food, etc. that got trapped in the hair. So it makes sense that it would smell absolutely rancid. Totally makes sense. And if you've been around here long enough or you've been on Patreon, you know that I every so often will read some Bigfoot erotica. And let me tell you, they never mention the pungent smell. And I'm pretty sure Bigfoot absolutely stinks. So that part of the story, I believe. If you're seeing a Bigfoot knocking around, you're going to smell it before you see it. 
there are also elements of the story that are really interesting like the visual of this creature holding a dead dog in its arms like presumably to eat it or whatever like that's a really scary image but actually when Edgar Harrison went out to check he didn't find any blood he didn't find anything that would suggest an animal had been killed and then he posited oh maybe it was carrying like one of its babies one of its young and the little boy Terry Harrison misinterpreted what he saw but actually one of the main images of Momo is this image of a creature like carrying a dead dog and dogs going missing and it was you know a really dangerous animal to have around your livestock or to be around domestic animals and actually, there is no proof that that part of the story was even real. I mean, there's no proof that any part of the story was real. But in terms of like what Terry Harrison saw, we're basing this all on the testimony of like an eight-year-old boy who saw a bloodied creature, but there was no evidence of a bloodied creature having been there at all. You know, and if there's this omnivorous creature that apparently hunts like chickens, dogs, whatever, and also sheep were mentioned as well, I feel like there would be more evidence of this creature having hunted those animals, whether it's blood, remains, bones. You'd obviously have creatures that would be maimed on farms, etc. And it doesn't seem like anybody is making those connections or saying, oh, all these things happened on my land and actually it probably is this creature, which you would obviously think if you were having animals being maimed on your land and then suddenly everybody's seeing this big creature. So the lack of physical evidence is kind of astounding considering there were so many sightings. And the inclusion of the lights in the sky in this story around the same time as all the Momo sightings, I mean, it seems to me to suggest that Momo, Bigfoot, etc. are some sort of alien beings. And I have to say, that is very reminiscent of, of Predator popping up on Earth to be going hunting things. You know, if you've seen the film Prey, the newest Predator that came out, it's on Disney+. Plus. Like, it's going around, it's hunting all the animals that it can find, including humans. Are you telling me that Predator is a documentary? Is that what people are telling me? Is that what this is suggesting? But I I, I will say that I prefer the idea of aliens being Bigfoot-esque rather than the idea of aliens being little green goblins or little grey goblins, to be be really honest. I feel like if if aliens are Bigfoot-esque, there's always a chance that you're going to get, like, a Harry and the Hendersons type... Bigfoot rather than a predator type Bigfoot there's always there's always the option there you might get lucky and while I was reading the book about this story I obviously came across the story of the frozen creature that resembled like a Momo monster that was allegedly shot outside Louisiana and I've just realized I've mentioned the book numerous times but not actually named it so the book that I read was called Momo the strange case of the Missouri monster by Lyle Blackburn and it's kind of a very interesting, entertaining little read, if you're interested. And in the book, he talks about meeting a woman who claimed to have seen this creature in ice. And she was fully convinced that this creature was real because of the smell of, like, decomposing flesh. And it was very reminiscent of the, like, P.T. Barnum making mermaids so that people believed there were mermaids and creating these sort of sideshows that people really believed at the time. And in the book, he references the Minnesota Iceman. And I'd heard of the Minnesota Iceman, but didn't really fully know the story. And I would strongly recommend looking up, even just reading the Wikipedia. It's a really interesting little story about how easily duped we are as people. And admittedly, the Minnesota Iceman, like, it's a good fake, you know? It's a good fake. And the guy who created it, it was this kind of like missing link type creature that was encased in ice and everybody was really interested in it. He put forward a good case as to, you know, as to its validity that was later kind of proven to not be true. 
But I think there's a part of us as humans that we so desperately want to believe that there are other magical things out there that we will pretty much allow ourselves to believe lots of things that have blatant plot holes, you know. But am I adding Louisiana, Missouri to my list of places to visit in America? You bet your bottom dollar I am adding Louisiana, Missouri to my list of places. I absolutely loved this story, but like I said, we're not going to be looking at Bigfoot for quite a long time, if ever, ever again. And I'm also very aware of the slightly manic nature of this episode, and uh, that is a combination of no sleep and having to move house and all of the lovely stuff that comes with that. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you would like to send in your own spooky story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast.gmail.com. You can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And if you are desperate for extra content, you can sign up to patreon.com forward slash reallifeghoststories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad-free. And on that note, I shall see you next time. 